Welcome to the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Jackie Broadhead. And I'm Rob McNeil. This is our first podcast and we're hoping to be able to bring you uh, insights from the extensive migration research that happens from across the University of Oxford and beyond. I am the director of the Global Exchange on Migration and Diversity. I work on integration and inclusion and also questions of refugee resettlement. And I'm the Deputy Director of the Migration Observatory and I'm focused really on media and the way that, uh, that the stories that are told affect policy decisions. So obviously today we're going to start with a discussion around the situation in Ukraine. We're going to have a panel discussion with a number of expert researchers about some of the wider considerations, but we wanted to start off with a discussion of some of the challenges around refugee resettlement that's been happening here in the UK. Yeah, so I mean, one of the key questions I think, Jackie, is this is is about this idea of of what the what the Home Secretary has described as bespoke humanitarian routes. From my point of view, these are these are something very different from what we would traditionally understand uh, asylum routes to be. Yes, I think that word bespoke is incredibly important. So refugee protection in the UK and also internationally has always been focused on universalist principles of protection and refuge whereas the trend in the UK seeing for example the Hong Kong uh, British National Overseas Visa uh, and now this scheme firstly it's much more of a visa route and secondly it's not looking to stick to those principles it's a visa-based system rather than being around claiming protection but I think what we've also seen is this huge outpouring of people wanting to support Ukrainian refugees or people arriving in the in the UK from Ukraine and I think that actually is very much in line with a broader trend around migration attitudes that we've seen this big shift and softening over a long period of time right back from 2014 and so from my point of view this is very much seeing questions of refugee protection come much more in line with public opinion as opposed to some of the kind of rhetoric that we've seen about migration in recent years. But that, that rhetoric's quite interesting though, isn't it? Because I mean, as you say, I mean, we've seen like research from Pew and various other people showing the UK becoming progressively more and more open to migration broadly. And yet government policy has been focused on this issue of deterring, particularly deterring irregular migration, obviously, but 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 deterring people from coming to the UK to claim asylum. And this idea that these bespoke routes kind of introduce is the concept that the UK should be able to be selective in who is able to come here and, and claim asylum which is obviously somewhat somewhat flies in the face of what we would traditionally expect um the asylum system to be to be there to do and it's interesting that 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 this kind of effort to demonstrate control and i think that 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 issue is something that the the ukrainian crisis is sort of bringing into sharp relief that actually control you know like sort of limiting numbers limiting who can come can quite often be a major issue a major problem but when government narratives tell you that something's out of control it does create the idea among the public that, that this is something a problem that needs to be solved rather than that there are people that need to be helped Yes, and that's something that I really notice in my research, which focuses on 
uh, the local level and integration. Often some of these schemes where there's quite a lot of fear and worry around migration and a want to have kind of control and grip is contrasted quite a lot with the reality on the ground for something like the Hong Kong BNO scheme, where there have been relatively large numbers of arrivals, but there haven't really been the anticipated uh, integration challenges, partly because there has been funding in place for local areas to do some proactive work. And one of the things that we really see with a lot of these schemes is just how reactive they are. So they're responding to events rather than building kind of long-term infrastructure. And the second thing that I think is really important is that this is a shift from migration governance at the Home Office or the kind of internal border control department through to the department that's responsible for local government and much more of a focus on inclusion and integration. And it'll be interesting to watch how that develops. And I think it's worth remembering, of course, though, I mean, like, it's very easy for us to sit in the UK and look at the various challenges that we're encountering here and that are, that are occurring. But of course, the UK situation is it's almost negligible compared to what's happening in the immediate area around Ukraine, Poland, Moldova, Slovakia, Romania, um, in terms of dealing with this massive, massive flow of people. But of course, more profoundly than that, what's actually happening to the people on the ground in Ukraine. So we're very, very lucky to have a panel of fantastic guests from around the university. University of Oxford and beyond who have real expertise in this issue and we've got guests from Ukraine we've got guests who've been based in and been working in Ukraine and guests who've worked on the issue of Ukrainians in the UK and the issue of uh, the impact that uh, that um, the Ukrainian labor force has in the UK on food security um, so it's going to be a fantastic and very interesting uh, group to listen to I am Volodymyr Artyuk. I am a postdoctoral researcher at Compass and work on the project which is called Emptiness. So good morning everybody. I'm Emmarin Pilain and I'm a postdoctoral affiliate here at Compass and I recently finished my my PhD also and I was looking at displacement from the eastern Ukrainian region of Donbass. I'm Roxana Barbulescu. I'm a associate professor at the University of Leeds, um, and I'm now working on a couple of projects, one of which is Feeding the Nation that looked at seasonal migrant workers. Um, and many of these in the past few years in the UK have been from migrant workers from Ukraine. Okay, so I'm going to start by just talking to you, Vladimir, if you don't mind. Your research has looked at the question of emptiness, primarily in the post-Soviet world. And I wanted to ask you whether or not you felt that the loss of people in the post-Soviet world, whether or not people leaving Russia, people leaving Ukraine, people leaving other parts of the post-Soviet region, has actually played a role in creating the set of circumstances that have led up to the invasion of Ukraine. Our project, uh, which is called Emptiness, uh, deals with uh, restructuring of social relations uh, within in those sites and areas that we that people experience as being emptied, and uh, of course, part of this restructuring implies the out migration, uh, loss of people, uh, but it also implies. Uh, Withdrawal of the state, uh, crumbling infrastructure, withdrawal of capital investment, and uh, overall loss of the sense of progress, uh, changes in in people's temporal imaginaries. So this is uh, this is quite a, co- a complex concept. 
The, the question that you ask whether uh, the loss of people contributed to the start of the war or the on ongoing conflict, I would say is relevant. But what, what is more, we need to, we need to see the out migration and the complex internal mi mi migrant trajectories within post-Soviet area as part of this post-socialist transformation uh, that has been happening there. And this implies uh, looking at drastic processes of deindustrialization in Ukraine and, and Russia that underlied the political processes and, and the process of uh, nation building. So th this idea that the process of nation building has been interrupted by a kind of deindustrialization, the kind of exit of capital and exit of, I guess, of, of a sense of, of identity within an area, does that mean that you lose the idea of the place, the idea of Russia or the idea of Ukraine or the idea of Latvia as a, as a functioning space? Uh, one can, yeah, like one can put it like this. I would say that what was lost was uh, a sense of a forward movement. Uh, that was, of course, uh, the legitimizing narrative of the Soviet of the Soviet Union and nothing came in its place nothing as encompassing and as um, hegemonic came in its place after the collapse of the Soviet Union what uh, was there was a very fragmented ideological space that comprised bits of western ideologies prevalent at that moment in the 90s uh, bits of liberalism bits of conservatism and a huge chunk of nationalism nationalism not as an as an all-encompassing project as, as a project of alternative mo modernity but as a quite a thin ideology that lacks an idea of how society should look like within this, these new states and i would claim that this lack of new hegemonic idea of of the new modernity post-soviet modernity affected both ukraine and and russia and and many other post-soviet countries and would you say then that the current relationship between Ukraine and Russia is, is, is a facet of the kind of nationalist ideas in, in, in both countries to some extent with the Russian concept of a greater Russia that should be extended into and an emerging nationalist idea of, of what Ukraine could be that's then suddenly been really crystallized into, into an identity after the, the invasion? Uh, these are part of what I described. Uh, these ideas were quite thin. They, both in Russia and in Ukraine, the idea of imperial nationalism in Russian case and idea of uh, Ukrainian nationalism never penetrated deeply in broad layers of society. Uh, they, they underlie basic claims for legitimacy for the ruling elites, uh, quickly changing in Ukraine and quite stable in Russia. And they required more and more violent means of sustaining this power of the ruling elites. Uh, as, because, as I said, they lacked hegemonic uh, dimension, they lacked persuasion, they lacked um, broad acceptance with the, within population. So because they had to be sustained by more and more violent means, they contributed to the rising tensions and to the tragic outcome which the current war is. Vladimir, thank you uh, very much for that. Right, let's turn to Emma Rimpelainen now, whose field research has uh, been all around Ukraine and Russia. 
and who's seen the impact of the previous conflicts in places like Donbass on displacement and migration. Emma, how do you see the legacies of these conflicts playing out in what we're seeing now? Yes, so I think in 2014, when the situation in, in Donbass started, there was some sort of initial ambiguity about what, is, what does this mean? What is going on? Is this a sort of a homebrown um, phenomenon? Or is this something that is being directed from abroad, from, from Russia? And I think now, now sort of the situation has changed so that we are probably more confident in saying that the war in, in Donbass since 2014 has been a part of a kind of Russian strategy probably for a long, for longer time. I mean, obviously, it's created massive internal displacement in Ukraine over the last um, over the last eight years. Obviously, one presumes that the that the people that have moved have primarily been those that are sympathetic to the Ukrainian position on what should be happening, and those that have remained are those that are probably more likely to be either ambivalent about who is in charge or alternatively more pro-Russian. But do you, so, has the migration flows the the internal displacement created more of a justification for the Russian for the Russian action or more willingness on the part of the local populace there to accept this kind of thing or is this just an irrelevance do you think well i don't think it's entirely fair to say that those who leave or those who left from donbass were somehow pro-ukrainian and those who stayed are not because as most of my interlocutors were quite forcibly stressing to me was that those who managed to leave are generally the sort of lucky ones people who have the capacity, they have the networks, they have money, they usually have education, and, and they're usually a bit younger. And those kind of people left. Whereas those who stayed tend to be older pensioners, people who have disabilities and don't necessarily move that well. And, you know, to a degree, there were also maybe some people who supported this idea of of Donbass becoming an independent republic or two independent republics or joining Russia. But yeah, from what I saw in my fieldwork, it's not really a question of sort of political allegiance about regarding like who stays and who leaves. It's more about personal circumstances. And also, since I also did fieldwork in Russia, I noticed that there were some people who said that like, well, I had the assumption, of course, as probably many of us would have, that those who went to Russia somehow supported Russian actions in, in Donbass. But when I interviewed people, it became quite clear that this was not always the case. And people quite often gave really practical reasons for going to a specific place, like saying that, well, we could have gone anywhere, but we had relatives here. Emma, thanks a lot. Uh, okay, so we're going to turn to another aspect of the migration side of all of this. Roxana Barbalescu, your project Feeding the Nation looks at the impact of seasonal workers, particularly those from Ukraine and UK agriculture. Would you say that the current crisis in Ukraine has really highlighted these sort of global interconnections as far as uh, food security is concerned? Certainly, Ukraine is one of the major countries of origin for seasonal workers. That is, the majority of workers who arrive in the UK to do work in agriculture every year. But also UK imports a significant percentage of fertilizer and also cereals, crops, like wheat, barley. It contributes to about 30% of cereals that we consume on a normal basis. And that is the predominant um, ingredient in our diet. So in that sense, not only there were in Ukraine, but also sanctions on Russia and exporting sanctions on Russia will also have because fertilizer come predominantly from Russia. And I know that this is particular concern and it will lead to food inflation. 
And so, so just in terms of what we think that this is likely to mean um, for the future, for migra- you know, for this kind of globalized network of food production, I mean, does this? Do you think that this is going to start to push nations towards greater effort at self-sufficiency, a reduction of globalization, or is this just an impossibility? I'm glad you asked that. I think we stand now at a crossroad that we're thinking and we see how how a small sector such as agriculture, and it's a small sector indeed, about 300,000 people across the country, but seasonal workers, about 75,000 workers. But they really do support internal production. And we have to think about where we want our food to come from, what we want migration systems to achieve. Is this the best way? We have to think in questions like food miles as well. Do we want that local food to depend on overseas migrants? Do we want to have any opportunity for uh, low-skilled migrants to come to UK for short periods of time? This visa was open for six months and it was successful for the time that it was open to Ukrainians and the former Soviet Union space. And I wanted to say that while Ukrainians made the great majority of those who use this visa, second would be Russians and Moldovians and Georgians that use this visa. And we have to think what will happen. It's, it does the implication go beyond Ukrainians, although Ukrainians are the first who are impacted by this change. But we have to think in in thinking better how migration system connects and contributes to sustainability questions, to food security. What has happened in the past few years because of difficulties in accessing workers and being able to recruit people directly as they used to do with freedom of movement, the farmers have had shortages. We looked down and the majority of farmers had between 11 and 20 percent, very few, less than 10 percent that had no shortage last year, which meant they reduced production. And this year we have less food being grown and, and able to harvest than the coming summer. So we're already in a poorer, weaker situation than would have been a year ago because of this situation. But yeah, I've been interviewing um, Ukrainian workers who've been in the UK last year and I've kept in touch with them since the start of the war and the positions are really divided. And um, from my experience, it has to do more with gender because the women could and have left the majority of them, unless they are in more secure parts of, of Ukraine, But the men, and particularly young men, that came and used the program last year to come to the UK, they are still in in Kiev and in and around Ukraine and preparing in basements, preparing to fight. Really, Roxana, thank you so much. Right, we'd like to wrap up this podcast episode with a final thought from each of you on where you think this is all going. Vladimir, let me start with you. Is there anything you've learned in your work that can help to illuminate what's happening or where this all might go? Thank you for this question. Uh, One of the outcomes of of my research uh, was uh, that extreme inequality in Ukraine and similarly in, in Russia have contributed to uh, the failure of both state-building projects. Uh, And it was both a regional inequality and a social inequality, which is extremely high in in, in both countries. 
uh, both these dimensions have contributed to the rising tensions and increasing role of violence within the countries and uh, between those countries. So uh, whatever international help uh, to, to Ukraine and whatever international peace-building efforts should also include this crucial dimension, any economic assistance should be uh, premised on eliminating inequalities within uh, both countries. We have to think whether there is an opportunity here to um, establish a list of countries where the UK recruits from. I know we've been, there's been this uh, agenda of global Britain and recruiting throughout rather than targeting recruiting in certain countries. Perhaps this is an opportunity to do that and to look as well in terms of sanctions if we want, because it's not only Ukrainians, there are others on that uh, UK for uh, the temporary visa recruited from, particularly Russia, Belarus were very high on, on the recruitment list, but also Georgians, Moldovians, do we want to, how do we want to, to organize their migration? I think one thing is the fact that we're now seeing extremely kind of positive attitudes towards anybody fleeing war from Ukraine in comparison to what the situation was internally since 2014 and also like externally in EU countries we see a massive willingness to help Ukrainians to like give them shelter and give them temporary protection and so on and none of this really existed in the previous waves of displacement that I have um, observed. The current situation is, is really different. Um, as I said, EU countries have now implemented the temporary protection uh, directive, which means that anybody fleeing the war in Ukraine can sort of automatically get protection. And obviously this is a very good thing and this is what should happen. But I think this is a, an opportunity to also to imagine how we could have treated refugees from, from other situations and other countries previously and also to kind of think how can we go move forward on the European level and also in the UK by sort of giving anybody who flees war the kind of opportunities and the kind of treatments that we're now seeing being given to Ukrainians. I'd just like to say a, a very big thank you to our guests, Vladimir Archuk, Roxana Barbalescu and Emma Rimpelainen. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Jackie Broadhead. And I'm Rob McNeil. Please join us for our next episode when we'll be talking about citizenship and what happens when it's taken away.